It's go time. Ottawa provides a very fascinating stat, and there are other stats to which we need to address some issues. Welcome everyone to Third Down Gamble, Don Charbon along with Heath Graham. Before we get into player movement, let's talk about statistics. I've long been a defender of the CFL statistics department. This is not going to be something that I'm going to be doing to get after them. But I'm going to point the finger at the CFL itself, and namely the people in charge. As you're well aware, if you've tried to go to CFL.ca and maybe even followed the game live, the statistics are just not showing up. And this is now week eight. We're two months into it now in a software type of situation, that's not uncommon to go a couple, three months while the bugs are being worked out. But in the middle of a season when you wanted to roll out prop bets, game day bets, all that sort of stuff, it does impact in some way. JC Abbott put up a great story on 3Down Nation where the previous software developer for the statistics department, Sharpat, was unaware that there was so much trouble going on in the CFL with Genius Sports' new program and noted that when they implemented their system in 2016, it went flawlessly. Does that mean that, and let's put it at the feet of those who made the choice, does that mean that the CFL maybe should have stepped back and had a parallel system while Genius Sports was going forward? It's possible that they should have kept the old system live and going as long as they could to make sure of a smooth transition. It is getting to be quite embarrassing for the league and for Genius Sports at this point. We're near the midpoint of the season with a few improvements, a few visible indicators that things are moving in the right direction, but still not where it needs to be. And you mentioned exactly the game day betting, the prop betting, things that the league was excited about bringing in over the last couple of years with single game betting legalized in Canada. We've talked about it numerous times on previous podcasts, the importance, the influx of dollars that it could bring to the league and to the teams. They're shooting themselves in the foot right now, the longer this goes on. Uh, There's many other reasons why the stats are important as well, but the revenue loss from the potential of of prop betting and, and in-game betting is a huge loss for them right now. Let's set gambling aside and let's just get statistics up to the forefront. In terms of media outlets, whether it's Three Down Nation, ourselves, or television, TSN, you want those stats to be up-to-date, correct, and you want to be able to publish with them. With the previous system, and I have recounted it on this show, I've talked to Steve Daniel about it, we even shared commentary about it during previous podcasts, before Genius showed up, that the programming was very robust. And it wasn't, according to Sharpat now that we're learning, it wasn't an old closed architecture. In other words, you couldn't upgrade it to a new platform if you if you felt the need you it was there 
It was built to be upgradable. And the one thing that they also did was that it was a simplified input system where you put in the numbers, the programming would pick it up, and then if you had to make an alteration, you could go back and quickly do that. It was basically designed for input and presentation very quickly, and it did a very good job of it for the years that it was being used. It's a real big question in my mind, why do you walk away from something that was working? Why not keep it parallel? Now, I know 3Down on their podcast has chided the CFL over this, the stats department is caught in the middle because they've got to do what they're told and they're going to work with whatever they have. But they're the ones taking the brunt. They're, every time something's mentioned, it's always them. And it's not them that's doing it, nor is it the stadium statisticians. It is the programming software. Now, you could say what you want about Genius Sports. The bigger question is when you're bringing in a new system and trying to find a way to make it work, I would say... Keep the previous one working. I agree with you 100%. And a couple of things that I have noted, Randy Ambrosi is talking a lot about the positives when this is straightened out. The data that he claims and Genius claims it's going to be readily available is going to make up for the pain caused by their shortcomings at the start of this season. As weeks go by and the issues continue, my expectation of what it's going to take to be blown away by the new system continues to rise. It, it better be something spectacular. We've even been to the point where we generally record our podcasts on a Wednesday and you and I will have different websites open with some different stat numbers still there. They're, they're close, but they're not exactly the same. We, we had an instance where we were talking about a quarterback's passing stats And the number I had in front of me was about seven yards different than the number that you had in front of you. So these things need to get worked out and published to all media outlets and be readily available for everyone. I wholeheartedly agree. I'm getting my information straight from the stats people. They have a protocol that you can sign in and you can get the stats packages that are sent out. Vetted, it's audited, and it's correct. The CFL.ca I'm not sure who does what there is different. And it does make for some question marks. And we've had to do it on this show. We live with accuracy. We live with authenticity. We do our best to be as correct as possible. We make mistakes, yes. We own them when we make them as best we can. The CFL right now is kind of, eh, it's okay. Don't worry about it. And I love this league, but at times it does infuriate me this Randy Ambrosi's kind of, he's a very macro commissioner, but at this point in time, he needs to be a micro commissioner. He needs to be digging hard and coming back with answers. He does. He's come across fairly nonchalant about the whole situation. And as I said, as, as the season ticks on, there's a lot of people that are getting pretty frustrated at this whole situation and are rightfully demanding the answers. Again, they've, they've, kind of moved the goalpost. They said it was going to be ready preseason. Then when preseason was on, they were tweaking it and it was going to be middle of July. We're now into that last week of July and and it's still not where it needs to be. So uh, I think you said about eight weeks at this point, give or take with the preseason games. It's a, it's a long time in, in a football season world, maybe not necessarily in a computer programming software development world. The real-time stats that professional sports fans 
media, players, coaches, everyone involved expect to see need to be there and they need to be accurate. At the beginning of the season, we saw edits and audits coming back days later that something had gone wrong. Again, the the crews are there. They're inputting what they see, what they know to be true. They get checked over by their their bosses. But somewhere after that, then this information goes kablooey-bluey. And one of the things that has really bothered me is that if you go back to a previous season, and there are times when I want to see what happened between one of the games that happened this week was Toronto and Hamilton. I want to go back to last year, and I want to click on the game tracker. I'm thinking about something, and I want to see if that happened in that game. You can't do that. It's not there right now. It's nowhere to be found. You can see the final score, and that's it. And that kind of data mining that I'm used to does make you wonder if you're much more of a daily, say, and you're having to produce much more content, how that impacts you. A couple things that came out of the game with the BC Lions, Vernon Adams Jr. injured very early in the first quarter on a sack. There's no structural damage that we're aware, and he may be available for the game against Edmonton on the weekend, but at least he's not going to be put on the sixth game. We've seen a lot of serious injuries to quarterbacks over the last year. Anytime a quarterback goes down in these situations, you kind of hold your breath and hope it's not serious. Seeing what happened, he kind of got hung up in the turf and went over funny on the leg. It didn't look as severe as some of the other ones that we've seen. He was on the sidelines for most of the remainder of the game, not wearing a walking boot, not on crutches, anything like that. So always a good sign to see. Uh, It appears backup Dane Evans is going to get the start this coming week, but it doesn't appear to be a long-term injury for Vernon Adams, and that's great news for him, for the Lions, and for the league as a whole. Another interesting aspect of that game with Dane Evans and Mason Fine both being the quarterbacks of note for the majority of the game. This may be, we don't know for sure, but this may be the first time where two First Nations were quarterbacks in a football game facing each other in the CFL. Evans is a member of the Wichita Nation. Fine is a member of the Cherokee Nation, both in Oklahoma. To see two First Nations quarterbacks in the CFL, we talk about strength is diversity all the time. That's been the moniker for the CFL for a lot of years. This absolutely brings the light to where it needs to be. It does. It's a a great story to come out of this game. We we mentioned we don't know if it's the first time just because of the, the history in North America. There was a lot of reason for First Nations people to often hide their identities in the past. There are some prominent Indigenous athletes that we have had, uh, Jack Jacobs for one, that comes to mind in, in the past of the CFL. Certainly the advancement in, in the diversity initiatives of the CFL bring this one to light. It's really fantastic. It wasn't played up by TSN, but they may not have been aware at that moment during the broadcast for the league to have more representation. Promote the game in those communities because it is a great game to play. Anytime you diversify and make everybody feel welcome, it's a better world in which we live. The Lions do a great job in the game day experience as well. I happen to be at this one in person and there's a lot of 
acknowledgements towards the West Coast nations. They had a one of the nations honored with the suite at the game. It's a great initiative, and we see that across the prairies uh, somewhat as well with land acknowledgements and that sort of thing. I know the Blue Bombers and the Lions have probably the nicest logos when they do their Indigenous Peoples Day and, and that kind of celebration as well. So as we move towards that growth, it's great for the league. The other thing that the Lions did was have a halftime show where they picked five random people wearing green jerseys and five random people <laughs> wearing black and orange out of the crowd to compete in certain skills competitions. Well, there was a little bit of a bias, I think, in the choices made for the Lions' representation. It's part of Amar Doman's initiative to re-engage the fans. A lot of family fun, a lot of appreciation for the traveling Rough Rider fans that, that are in attendance for those games. Rider fans are the best traveled fans in the league. It's pretty evident. And any CFL city that you visit when there's a game on, you see that presence. And the Lions were not ignorant to that. They had some great pregame festivities involving watermelon eating contests, that sort of thing as well. And then they brought in the halftime show. The Lions fans that were supposedly randomly drawn had a fantastic showing compared to the Ryder fans at halftime. But again, great, great value, great entertainment and further solidifying the BC Lions as part of that Vancouver community and, and really engaging and getting the young fans back in the stadium. The BC representatives that were on the field during that little halftime skills competition that Brett Butt introduced uh, included an NCAA runner, two Canadian college quarterbacks, former Lions receiver Sean Gore, and Hall of Fame kicker Paul McCallum. The uh, five Ryder fans were up against it all the way, which is just a great tongue-in-cheek way to do it. Amar Daman is the guy. Like we got to get him on this podcast one of these days because I'd love to talk to him. He's got so many ideas. Player movement, trades. Let's talk about it. Sean Lemon has a team. Jagarrett Davis has a new team. Sean Lemon, who last season played with the Calgary Stampeders and was unsigned at the beginning of this year, has now signed with the Montreal Alouettes. The Stampeders today made a trade acquiring Jagarrett Davis from the Hamilton Tiger Cats for a sixth round draft pick. My question is, Calgary had the potential to sign Sean Lemon, a perennial, most outstanding defensive player candidate, at least for the West, let him walk and now are picking up Jagarrett Davis and not to take anything away from Jagarrett Davis, but is he getting a little bit long in the tooth to be that much of a difference maker for the Stamps? He had been sat down by the Tiger Cats against Toronto, and that was not due to injury. Sean Lemon had tried out for the BC Lions in this season, but they had also cut him. So you're kind of wondering if it's an even exchange in a sense. Sean Lemon, certainly Western nominee for defensive MOP last year. Jagarrett Davis, of course, wherever he goes, the Grey Cup follows. I'm curious to see what kind of impact they have. I'm curious as to why the Alouettes felt the need. It is. There There could be an injury that we're not aware of. They could just be looking to add some depth to that position as well. Two all-star caliber 
defensive linemen on the move. We'll see what they have left in the tank. They're both longtime veterans. And interesting, uh, as you mentioned, Jagera Davis has played in the Grey Cup, I think now four or five consecutive seasons. So does that now make the Calgary Stampeders the favorite in the West? (laughs) If you're believing in superstition, yes. Before we go on to last week's games, let's talk about one part of the Rough Riders BC Lions game, and this comes late in the game. Saskatchewan is at the BC 12-yard line with 2.35 to go. And on a third down, they do something that they couldn't do the rest of the day, and that is run for more than two yards, and they get the first down. Your thinking at the time is they do this with only 2.35 to go, that they are going to now straight up play for the touchdown. This is how they're going to approach this. They run two more plays, wind up with a third and five, and then trot Brett Lowther onto the field with a minute and 56 to go to kick a field goal. It is successful, but the Rough Riders have squandered 40 seconds of the last three minutes to go basically five yards when they could have kicked the field goal on third and two anyway and saved the clock. I believe that was a coaching error by the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. You can second guess all you want. Being in the stadium and seeing how much the Rough Riders struggled on offense throughout the game, they they were in a situation where they needed two scores. They were down by 10 points. They needed to make something happen. At that point, you've got to take the the sure points. A chip shot by Brett Lothar from the with the ball on the twelve yard line to be a eighteen nineteen yard field goal. Versus they managed to move it to the eight yard line, so he's kicking a fourteen fifteen yard field goal. Doesn't make that much of a difference. It was something that he's going to make ninety eight percent of the time. Anyway, take the three points take your chances on the onside kick or whatever your situation is. Don't waste almost a minute of the game time and put yourself in a tougher situation. And this one just didn't make a lot of sense to me. Compare that to July 13th, Edmonton versus Hamilton. Edmonton is at the Hamilton 37 yard line. They're second and 10. And Chris Jones says, well, we need two scores as well. We're down 10. So immediately sends out the kicking team to get the field goal, knowing that they can try a short kick and attempt to get the ball back, not wasting any more clock time, getting a touchdown, because if they do happen to score, there may be like two seconds left in the game and they can't do anything with it anyway. I have a lot of consternation about what happened with Craig Dickinson on that decision-making process. If you're third and two and you can't run and you gamble on your running, then you've got to, give your offense the option, well, more than the option, the command to go down the field and finish the drive. If that's what you're wedded to, do it. Taking the field goal after 40 more seconds of clock time gone away, and now you, this is just, I don't understand this. With Had they gone for the field goal with the initial placement when they were on the 12-yard line, they could have even had an opportunity to kick it deep and get it back. They could have played the field position game where they left themselves by running that time off is then they were forced to go for the short kick. Didn't work out in their favor and essentially the game was over. Second down. 
Edmonton goes into Winnipeg to start week seven in the Canadian Football League. The Elks, even up at halftime, but the Blue Bombers almost impose their will in the second half and win going away 28-14. to 14. Interestingly, though, the Bombers don't cover. The spread was 14.5, and they only won by 14. It's amazing that a game in which a team wins by only 14 can be seen as a disappointing win. I had picked the over, so I was hoping for at least a punt single late to uh, to push them over that, that 15-point mark. Didn't quite make it, but all in all, um, a pretty solid performance by the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. The defense had one of their best games of the season by far. The offense was efficient enough. They got off to a little bit of a slow start, but moved the ball later on. Zach Kolaris had a couple of touchdowns. Brady Oliveira, after struggling to get a running game established in their previous game, just got better throughout the game. His yards per carry went up, up, up through all four quarters. You could almost see it in the Elks' eyes. And actually, I think it was Glenn Suter who was on the broadcast brought out the point that when Brady Oliveira got up after a tackle, he was ready to go. And the three or four Elks that were involved in the tackle were taking a long time to get up. That, to me, is sort of that old adage that you don't necessarily want to have diminished capacity to beat a team, i.e. run them to the ground. You want diminished will. You want to take their desire to win away from them. And if you just pound them the way the Bombers did in that second half with Oliveira, the Elks had every opportunity to stop them. They just couldn't. That's exactly right. And, and as I said, Winnipeg just continued to chip away. You could see Oliveira initiating contact when he was running as well. He was really dictating how each run was going. And that was one of the big dis- the big difference makers in this one. Now, Zach Kolaris is 20 of 24 for 308 yards, one interception, but two touchdowns. Taylor Cornelius, 17 of 29, 230, two INTs, and one touchdown. Of course, the big one that he got was the response to the Bombers touchdown in the third quarter, where he found Dylan Mitchell on a great uh, pump and go down the sideline. And it looked like Edmonton at that moment was going to be in it for the haul. And it seemed like as it had happened against Hamilton, things just disappeared. The Elks seemed to tail off in the second half of games from what we've noticed. And I don't know if that's adjustments that the other teams are making that the Elks are failing to do, if it's conditioning, what the situation is. But it goes from a close game at halftime. We've seen that on numerous occasions this season. And then by the time the game is over, it is a two score or more point differential. And the other side of the ball, we talked about Brady Oliveira establishing the running game. The Elks struggled. Kevin Brown had 11 carries for 51 yards, uh, really did not string a lot of successful running plays together. That puts more pressure on Cornelius to try to throw the ball. He was inconsistent. He had some some good ones. The, the touchdown pass to Dylan Mitchell was a great throw, a great play all in all. Uh, and then he was right back to missing guys and and the accuracy struggles came back to haunt him. Kenny Lawler made a huge impact for the Blue Bombers right away. It's almost as if he hadn't missed six weeks. The Elks, of course, go 0-7. This is haunting back to 19, I believe it is 38, when they were members of the Western Inter- 
Provincial Football Union, or maybe league, sorry if I got that wrong, the team then went 0-8 in an eight-game season. So they're on the verge of tying that, which is not a distinction I think they're fawning for. Big crowd in Winnipeg as well to watch the game. Great night for football. For Edmonton, The if they want to make the playoffs, just put it to you this way, if they went 10-1 and the rest of the way, they'd have a legitimate chance at being in the playoffs. That's asking a lot at this point. We move to Tim Hortons Field and the undefeated Toronto Argonauts go into Hamilton to take on the Tiger Cats. Toronto basically dominates from the word go and walks away with a 31 to 15 win over Hamilton. Penalties hurt the Tie Cats and big plays. Chad Kelly is amazing with his long ball throwing. Another great showing for Chad Kelly 20 for 27, 306 yards, two touchdowns throwing. One touchdown on the ground. Solid night for him. He continues to impress. We knew Hamilton with some injury concerns were in a tough spot. Taylor Powell was the starting quarterback for the Ticats. Not a terrible night for a first start, but he was in tough against a very strong Argonauts defense and an offense that seems to be growing in confidence every week. 27-41, 282, one interception. The one player that I thought needed to be a dominant player was not, and that was James Butler. Eight carries for 14 yards. Just quick math, 1.8 yards per carry. Compare that to his counterpart on the other side for the Argonauts, A.J. Ouellette, 10 carries, 84 yards. He's averaging 8.4 yards a carry. That really changes your offensive dynamic. It does, and when you've got a young quarterback early in their career, you can take a lot of pressure off of them by running the ball successfully. And that was something that the Tiger Cats did not do. Taylor Powell himself, four carries for 37 yards, was the leading rusher on the Tiger Cats. And James Butler, who has had some better games the previous week, he had a really good game, struggled to get anything going in this one. 1.8 yards per carry puts that untested quarterback in a pretty tough spot. To be fair to Taylor Powell, he did very well considering he was playing against one of the best ball-hawking defenses in the CFL. The Argonauts, all full marks for the win. They dominate. Total numbers won't indicate it. Here's 23 first downs for the Argos, 20 for the Tiger Cats, 306 yards passing for the Argos, 282 for the Tiger Cats. It doesn't look like a team is dominating, but when you put it together with how Toronto moved the ball, and got it into the end zone. And this is the Achilles heel for the Tiger Cats. They scored touchdowns against Edmonton. They didn't do it against Toronto. When your yards per play averages, the Argonauts average 8.1 yards per play on offense, Hamilton 5.9. So that's a big difference as well. Your That Argos offense was putting themselves in a great situation right from the first down. You have to think the Argonauts have really established themselves as the front runner in the entire league at this point in the season. They are still undefeated. The BC Lions have a couple of of games coming up here that are going to show where they stand as well. They've got Winnipeg coming up after uh, a game in Edmonton this week. If BC continues to win as well, I would put them as the front runners in the West. But right now, Toronto deserves that number one spot, that number one power ranking. Saturday in BC place. The Rough Riders are in town to take on the Lions. 19-9, the final score. 
One touchdown drive, ironically, comes after a safety is disallowed when DeMarcus Christmas hits the helmet of Dane Evans with a forearm. Now, the Riders are saying that was part of a normal tackle. The official on the field, the replay booth, disagreed and said that was a shot to the head. Gives them a 15-yard foul, and the Lions go down the field and score a touchdown, and that's the only one they get all night. The first half was full of two and outs. We got to see a, a lot of action from the punters early on in this game. Now, one thing that stood out for me for the BC Lions the defense played a, a great game. Matthew Betts didn't record a sack until the last play of the game. He has been phenomenal leading the league in sacks this year. Riders offensive line did a fairly good job of keeping him in check. He had four tackles and one sack, but it was the, the game ending the game ending sack. So he got it when it mattered. Lions stuffed the Rough Riders even more. 14 carries for 16 yards. We thought that Hamilton had trouble. Saskatchewan really had trouble against BC. One third of the way through the season, getting close to halfway through the season, this BC Lions defense is making some teams look very foolish on offense. And their their numbers, their points against at this point are in that territory where we saw the, the Blue Bombers a couple of years ago with a very dominant defense. I believe the Lions are on pace to beat that right now if they continue on this pace of, of points against. Mason Fine, 32 of 41 for 284, but two interceptions. Vernon Adams Jr., while he was there, one of two. Dane Evans, 16 of 25 for 219. An interception and a touchdown. Saskatchewan's offensive play calling was almost dizzying in terms of how conservative it was. The preponderance of throws by Mason Fine were between the line of scrimmage and five yards down the field. Generally, you're going to be a little bit more conservative on the play calling to try to get him some of that confidence. But at some point, you do have to start pushing the ball down the field. And the riders just didn't seem to create that sense of urgency and know when they needed to shift gears and and go deep. It wasn't until the last half of the fourth quarter that the ball started to be aired down the field. I'm not clear on why they were so tentative with him. He's been with the team for three years. Kelly Jeffrey wants to promote the running game, but it wasn't working. And as we'll see in the Calgary-Ottawa game, when running doesn't work, you've got to resort to the pass. But if you're only throwing it five yards down the field with your receivers facing their own goal line, there's no way to get yards after catch or yak yards. One thing I'll be watching for the Lions this week coming up is if Dane Evans and Sean Shivers spent a little bit of time working together in practice because it didn't really go well, the two of them trying to trying to hook up. Shivers was targeted six times. He managed three receptions for negative eight yards. He was overthrown on a couple of the incompletions, and he also had one bounce off his face mask. A tough outing for those two trying to get on the same page. Shivers shows some flashes. He's a very quick and elusive running back. And if they're going to succeed with Dane Evans in the starting quarterback role, they need to kind of get some of those kinks worked out. The other thing that Dane Evans will need is his receivers to hang on to the football. We move over to Sunday night and what a classic game this turned out to be. Everything that you'd wanted a football game, you had. The Ottawa Red Blacks for the second week in a row. And according to CFL, it is the first time that a team has won two overtime games in a row. Put it in context, overtime did not come in to the regular season of the CFL 
until quite late, in, in sometime in the mid-1980s, if I'm not mistaken. It's Calgary that has to kick the tying field goal with time running out. But the Red Blacks win the flip, wait to see what Calgary does. Calgary does score, but the Red Blacks score more in their half of the minigame. I did not predict that there was going to be 84 points scored in this game. It was a, a great offensive display. Jake Mayer kind of came through that Calgary system and has anointed himself as the starter. He's settling in a little bit to that role. Dustin Crum came into Red Black's camp as the number four quarterback on their depth chart. He's a couple of games in now, but what a couple of games. And, and I hope he continues on this upward arc. Very exciting to watch. The Stampeders did a really good job with Cam Judge spying the quarterback and not letting Crum beat them with his legs as he did against Winnipeg. And, and we've seen his escapability and his, his tendency to run. They took that away and all Crum did was beat them with his arm. We hear it, especially during football games, what halftime adjustments are going to be made. That was one that Calgary did make. They took Cameron Judge, the middle linebacker, and said, you're going to watch the quarterback. And if he starts to move anywhere, you're going to track him. And it worked because almost in the entire uh, rushing yardage of 63 yards from Crum happened in the first half, long of 27. Crum goes 23 of 29 for 257, two touchdowns. Jake Mayer, unbelievably, 28 of 38 for 450. Two interceptions, one. Brandon Dandridge takes to the house early in the game to get Ottawa going. Jake Mayer, a toss over the middle that he found Mark and Michelle, the safety, had vacated, and Mark and Michelle was in a foot race. And wow, did he show some jets going 95 yards to score the touchdown. For the 21-plus thousand that were there in Calgary, how could you, other than maybe the final result, how could you leave disappointed after what you saw? This game had a little bit of everything, and again, pressure was on Rene Paredes to get them to overtime, making the important field goal when it matters. His leg strength isn't quite where it used to be, so 45 to 50 yarders are kind of pushing the limit of his range. And we've now seen two weeks in a row where he has made some kicks in that range to, to get them into a position to win the game. The Red Blacks have to be just gaining confidence every game. Bob Dice has them ready to play. Nate Bahar had his best game of the season. Clutch catches when it mattered, including that two-point convert in overtime to seal the win. As we noted about Craig Dickinson, Dave Dickinson made a very interesting choice with a third down gamble where he brings in Tommy Stevens on a fake and he tries to roll him left and get the first down at the Ottawa 37. Doesn't make it. And the Red Blacks, buoyed by that, go right down the field. (laughs) It was a a toe-to-toe slugfest between these two. Ottawa is at 500, and would we have thought that after the way they started and their quarterback woes? We, I certainly didn't see it coming, and hats off to them. And, and I, I've been a Bob Dice fan. We were, we were all excited to see him get that chance to be a head coach again. A rough start when you're trying to figure out who your quarterback is going to be week in and week out, and, and you see a couple of key QBs go down to injury. It's been some great scouting to get some of these prospects up. We saw Tyree Adams before his injury show some flashes of brilliance as well. So that quarterback situation in Ottawa 
has sorted itself out. We're unsure about the future of Jeremiah Mazzoli given the nature of his injury and his age, but it looks like Ottawa's got a couple of guys ready to take his place. Curious stat for the Stampeders. Last year, they made three out of every four two-point converts that they attempted. This year, they haven't made any. Third down. We close July 2023 with four games in the Canadian Football League, starting with an Ontario battle. The Hamilton Tiger Cats go to Ottawa to take on the Red Blacks. The Red Blacks looking for their third straight home win in this season. The Tiger Cats trying to rebound after the drubbing they took at the hands of the Toronto Argonauts. Bo Levi Mitchell is practicing, but it doesn't look like Taylor Powell is going to be unseated from his starting position just yet. As we alluded to in second down, it's hard to believe that the Red Blacks have got themselves back to 500 and are a favorite in this game. I like the Red Blacks. I like what I've seen from them. Dustin Crum continues to impress. That offense is starting to starting to gel for the Red Blacks. Hamilton's quarterback situation is more dire right now than Ottawa's. And for that reason, I like Ottawa in this one. At three and a half points, it's, a again, sort of give the home team a field goal. So they're thinking this game's pretty close, but I'm with you. Ottawa at home, now their confidence, as you say, has got to be sky high. Bob Dice is just working wonders there, and it's the power of positive thinking. I'll, I'll take Ottawa and the three and a half points. Saskatchewan, as we go to Touchdown Atlantic, which sold out eons ago. Now, sadly, there's been unbelievable amounts of rain in Nova Scotia and New Brunswick. The Argonauts are 10.5-point favorites in this game. They are the home team on Saturday. Saskatchewan's in tough as well. They're going from the far reaches of the West Coast all the way to the easternmost football game that will happen this season. So a tough travel schedule for for the Riders, again, without Trevor Harris, Mason Fine will get the start against that Chad Kelly-led offense. I like the Argonauts in this one, and I think that that 10.5 points is reachable for them. So I'm going to take the Argos to cover that spread. Last year's touchdown Atlantic, it was a Winton McManus interception that went for a score late in the game that gave the Argos the win. They would go back into Regina the following week and beat the Riders again. The touchdown Atlantic game came on the heels of the whole business with Jeremiah Mazzoli at Mosaic Stadium and the injury that he suffered. Are we seeing now a sort of a, a crossroads game for the Rough Riders where if they lose this, they could go on that plummet that they took last year? It's going to be a really interesting playoff race between Saskatchewan and Calgary coming down the, the second half of this season. I firmly believe Winnipeg and BC are going to be in the playoffs at this point. Their records indicate that they're well on their way. Anything can happen, so we can't lock them into those spots yet. But it, it certainly appears that Saskatchewan and Calgary are going to be fighting over that last playoff spot. An important game. The Riders need to get something back on track here. But a very tough Toronto team is going to be a, a mountain that they're not able to overcome. Now, the Riders are looking at getting a couple of their receivers back in the lineup here as well, which will help. They've been decimated at the receiver position earlier this season. So any any little bit's going to help, but 
it's going to be a, a tough one. Well, think of it this way. The receivers that are getting back, who is going to blow the lid off the Toronto defense and go deep? You got Mark and Michelle, and we saw what he did on that 95-yard touchdown that he scored for Calgary against Ottawa. Who has that kind of speed with the Rough Riders? If you don't scare them with speed, they're not going to worry about you. If they thought they couldn't run against BC, they're going to find the same problem against Toronto on Saturday. They are going to have to unleash the arm of Mason Fine. They've got to open up this offense and let him sling it. If they don't, Argo's in a walk. The game that maybe is the most intrigue in terms of historical significance, it's the BC Lions going to Edmonton on Saturday later to take on the Elks, the Lions with Dane Evans quarterbacking eight and a half point favorites. It was the BC Lions that it was the was the last team that Edmonton beat at home in Edmonton back in 2019. Would this be a bookend for the Elks to finally close this chapter of A, losing streak, and B, home losing streak, and beat the Lions again? I, ma- I made a promise earlier this season that I was not taking the Elks to win one at home. Until they prove me wrong, I am taking the BC Lions. I'm going to take the BC Lions to cover this spread as well. I, I don't want to go back on it. Someday I'm going to be wrong and that streak is going to end, but I don't believe this is the one. I'm just concerned about the size of the spread. And as Edmonton did against Winnipeg, they did beat the spread. Dane Evans gets hot. He may, with that receiving core, just destroy Edmonton. But Edmonton's defense isn't bad. It's a question of what does Edmonton do against that BC defense? That's, again, the real problem. Five touchdowns allowed so far this year. Edmonton, who has been struggling to score touchdowns, how do they find a way through? For all we know, it's going to be, again, Taylor Cornelius, partly because Chris Jones wants continuity at the position. Calgary heads east into La Belle Provence to take on the Alouettes. The Alouettes at home, minus 2.5 favorites. I'm liking that spread. Calgary traditionally does not play well in Montreal. A Saturday night in Montreal coming to a Sunday game is not a great recipe. If you catch my drift. (laughs) The Alouettes are a far better team than their record. I would put them as, until Ottawa really started to show themselves, I would thought that Montreal was 1-2 with Toronto. Now they're in the mix with Ottawa. This is a big game for both of these teams as well. They're coming in with losing records, which I don't think either team felt that they would be in at this point in the season. Calgary at 2-4, and four, Montreal at 2-3. and three. We talked about Saskatchewan needing to establish themselves in that playoff race. Calgary does as well. But I do like the Alouettes at home. I think they're a tough out. A two and a half point spread isn't a huge one. So I'm going to take Montreal to to cover this one. Alouettes are also coming off the bye. And we know teams with the bye, what it means for them. Jake Mayer, if he's the Jake Mayer that we saw against Ottawa, then Calgary is going to give Montreal a lot of concern. If Cody Fajardo settles down in that pocket, The Alouettes have all the weapons in the world, despite the fact that they lost their top receiver to Edmonton. You mentioned Cody Fajardo and settling in at quarterback. If he manages to, he's got Kay and Julian Grant, Herjie Mayala, Chandler Worthy. Let's not forget the man who's leading the team, Austin Mack. Lots of weapons out there. They're going to need to to step up and get this one. Whichever team comes out with the victory is going to put themselves in a lot better playoff spot 
the team that does not win this one is going to be hard-pressed to move up. Thank you for listening to our show. Third Down Gamble is hosted on Podbean and can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Follow us on Twitter at Third Down Gamble. Join us again, the Third Down Gamble podcast, audio worth watching. Third Down Gamble uses the expert resources provided by Canadian Football League player and game statistics for analytics, game notes, and statistics, and 3downnation.com for news, insight, and in-depth analysis. Please visit cfl.ca and 3downnation.com for the most up-to-date information on the Canadian Football League.